Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. So we are in Genesis chapter 25. We're continuing our series through the book of Genesis. We're going to be shifting our attention a little bit to Jacob and Rebecca. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not the most handy person in the world. I'm not a natural tinkerer. I'm not an engineer. I'm not wired that way. I'm wired to like read books and talk. Uh, That's why I'm a pastor. I'm not uh, someone who works with my hands. Uh, I grew up in a house where my dad didn't really teach me much. And so I had to figure out a lot of stuff on my own. I, I didn't, my dad wasn't very handy either. So, um, so I had to, had to learn a lot. So where did I turn as an adult now married in a house trying to fix stuff? Where, what, where did I look to learn? I went to YouTube, right? Because you can learn anything on YouTube. Um, I replaced my entire water heater other than the tank multiple times, like 35 years old, because I used YouTube to find how to do it. So I replaced the thermocouple and I replaced the heating element. I replaced everything on this thing. And in fact, the the number two most searched thing on YouTube is a how-to video. How-to videos help us know what to look for, and how-to videos are only second to music. And so we have this curiosity in us about wanting to peel back the layer, peel back the curtain, and understand how things work. We want to know how the, the, the behind the scenes of how things work. And in fact, there's an entire podcast called How Stuff Works that just unpacks how different uh, items are made, how manufacturing works, because we like being able to look behind the scenes. Genesis 25 invites us to pull back the curtain and look under the hood and look behind what is the answer to one of the biggest questions that we ask when it comes to religion, and is, it is this, how does salvation work? What is God doing in salvation? Because when we see salvation, we think about someone coming to faith in Christ. It seems like it's just an outward decision. But what is actually occurring underneath the hood? What's actually occurring behind the scenes? Namely, how is a person saved? Now, I believe everyone is asking that question one way or another. How can a person be saved? Because everyone is asking the same question, whether consciously or subconsciously, we're really kind of mulling over four different questions. Number one is, how am I supposed to be in the world? How am I supposed to be? How do I, who am I called to be? What, what is my, um, my design? What is my purpose? What am I made for? Secondly, why am I not that way? We see the gap between who we are and who we act and who we know we're called to be. Thirdly is, what will make me that way? So if I see the gap, what can I do in order to get myself to bridge that gap? And then lastly, what do I do to achieve that? How do I actually achieve and go about that thing? And so if you see the problem for for you not being the way that you want to be as, if you see the problem as beauty or attractiveness, then the solution is going to be to work out more. The solution is going to be to find the right beauty products and the right skincare routine and, and the right things. I don't I should use a skincare routine. Uh, I'm going to look like 65 at 45 if I'm, uh, if I'm not careful. Um, if you think the solution is, if the problem's money, then the solution is going to be to find a better job or to get a better education. And there's nothing wrong with those things. If you think that the problem is inner peace, that you just feel anxious, then the solution is going to be to remove yourself from everything that makes you anxious. You're going to try to learn to be still, but the problem is, is that all of those problems are simply surface problems. None of them get to 
our deepest problem. And the reason we feel this sense of, of oughtness, the reason we feel this sense of that we should be something that we're not, is that we were made by God. God created us, and because we were made by God, that means that we were made for God. We were made by God for God, and so the question of salvation is, is how do I have a relationship with God? All of Genesis has shown us this, that sin has broken the world, that sin has broken relationship with God, and then all of us are trying to find our way back to him, that we need a way and that we need someone to come to the rescue. And as we've seen through the first 24 chapters of Genesis, as people have tried a lot of ways to get to God, and none of them have worked. There's a hero, a savior that is coming, and so the question is, is how are you saved? What is God doing and then what do you need to do? So our big idea, and really our only two big points today are this, God saves and we respond. God saves and we respond. So let's unpack this together. God saves, and God saves us by graciously making a way for us. If you, if you look at Genesis, the, the entire book has been whittling down to this one little family. It started out in the beginning as God creating a world for people. And then we get to Genesis 12. God is building a people that's going to bless the entire world. And so we see God doing this through Abraham's family, that Adam led to Noah, which led to his descendant Abraham. Abraham's family is now blessing the world, and it comes now through Isaac. And we see in verse 7 that Abraham has died. It says that these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. He breathed his last and died in a good old age. So we see that he's doing this, and we see that he has set up Isaac to continue to be a blessing. And we're going to get more into some of the family dynamics of the beginning of chapter 25, is it is some, if you think you've got a messed up family, wait till you hear about Abraham's family. There is some family trauma. We're going to cover that next week. Um, but we see here at the beginning of chapter 25 that Abraham has some other kids, he doesn't just have Isaac. We see that after Sarah's death, he married a woman named Keturah in verse 1. And then verses 2 and through 4 describe all the children that he had with his second wife. We also know from earlier in the text that he had another son named Ishmael by a woman named Hagar. And we see that, we see that in this that God had promised to bless Hagar's family, bless Ishmael, and verses 12 through 18 demonstrate that 12 tribes or 12 sons came out of Ishmael and that God blessed them as he had promised to do. Now to us, we see that Abraham has like 117 children, so he should be able to split his inheritance 117 ways. But that's not what he does. Our American sense of justice says, well, wait a minute, like if you've got all these kids, you should love all your kids evenly. You shouldn't have a favorite. Um, we, we want justice. I mean, if you don't think you do, think about when you order a pizza with friends. What do you immediately do? You start dividing the number of pieces by the number of people there, right? So if there's four of you and there's a large pizza, you each get two pieces. That's called pizza math, right? So when I was a kid, I punched my stepbrother because he failed to do the pizza math right. I, I, that last piece of pizza was mine, and I went to reach for it, and he like, and stuck his finger in the middle of it, and I punched him in the jaw. It was, it was an unsanctified moment, but it was my pizza. We think of justice that way. We, we think everything has to be even, and it has to be fair, but that's not what Isaac does. I, or Abraham does. Abraham wants Isaac to have the blessing. So it says that he sends them all away in verse 6, but he doesn't do this before giving them a blessing. Verse 6 says that he gave them gifts before he sent them away. Ishmael's family also was blessed by Abraham. And the question is, is why is he seeing, seeming to single out Isaac? 
is because the promise was that the promise would come through his only son, Isaac, the son of the promise. And this, what this actually does is it shows us two different types of grace that the world is given. There's a type of grace called common grace. And common grace is a type of grace that every single person on the planet gets. It's this type of blessing from God that just makes life better. It's a general blessing, things such as culture. God is advancing culture for everyone's good. Something like music is a blessing to either calm our souls or get us excited. You're about to work out. You're listening to like triple bass, like bass drum. You're like, you, you got to get pumped up. Music is, is God's blessing to all of us. The, the institution of the family is meant to be a blessing so that families flourish. And if you look at the Bible, a lot of the wisdom the Bible gives us, whether you're a Christian or not, actually is meant to help everybody live a flourishing life. Medical achievements, uh, technology, all of these things are used to make our lives better. And so what this shows us is that God loves the world. He loves his, his people. He loves humanity and wants us generally to live a good life. But secondly, and Romans 1 tells us this, is that the common grace that God gives us is to point us beyond itself, to make us hunger for not just the gifts, but the good gift giver. And this points us to, toward our need for saving grace. Saving grace is not something that everyone has received until they have received Christ. That you can only come to God through the chosen means that God provides, and that is through faith in Christ alone. And this comes when the Spirit convicts you and shows you your need for a Savior. When the Spirit convicts you and shows you that you're a sinner who's guilty, you're a sinner who bears shame, that you're a sinner who's afraid and needs a Savior. And this is who Isaac is pointing to. This is why it had to be Isaac alone. It couldn't be that Keturah's kids and Ishmael's kids could just live a good life and be right with God. All of them needed to submit to who Isaac was pointing to. Isaac was pointing to one day when Jesus would come and be the one who would take away our sins forever, that there is only one way to be saved, and that's through trusting Jesus alone. There are all sorts of ways that we try to be saved, all sorts of ways that we try to be made right with God, that we try to do enough or we try to be moral people. But when it comes to being right before God, we need a perfect record that only God can provide. And I think when we think about being right with God, we kind of like, we, I love sports, so you're going to get a sports analogy. Um, I, I think we, try to, we kind of think of it like baseball. If you're in the major leagues and you hit 300, which means that you get on base three out of 10 times, you're considered a Hall of Famer if you do that for 10 years, right? That, and so what that means is that seven out of 10 times you fail to get on base, that's how we imagine being right with God, that I'm doing pretty well compared to other people. I'm getting it right three out of 10 times. That guy's hitting like 117. He can't get out of triple A. Like, I'm doing pretty good. I, I'm a major league Christian, not a, not, a, not a triple A Christian. But actually, you're more like a major league umpire. A major league umpire who has a 95% success rate is considered a failure. And if you're a major league umpire, you could call a game flawlessly, but if you blow the last out, that's all anything, anyone ever remembers. We are required to have a perfect life that we cannot live. But the good news is that Jesus lived that perfect life for you, and what that means is that you are off the hook. It means that you don't have to live up to the standard because Jesus has done it for you and then therefore empowers you to live this way, and all you have to simply do is trust in Jesus alone. 
So God has, has graciously made a way for us, but also God saves by his sovereign choice. God has sovereignly chose those who trust him for salvation. And we see the story turning to the one he's chosen. We see it's, it's turning towards Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, their kids. And we see that Isaac and Rebekah face some struggles. They face some of the same struggles that Abraham and Sarah face. And we see in verse 20 that they've moved away from their family. Rebekah probably misses mom and dad and her, her uncle Laban. She, she, you know, she moved away. She's far away. They faced infertility in verse 21, that she was barren, much like Sarah had been barren. They faced these same struggles, but notice they, they react differently than Abraham and Sarah did. Instead of making decisions based on fear, they make decisions based on faith. And we see Isaac praying for his wife for 20 years to bear a child. God answers this prayer for pregnancy but it's a tough pregnancy. We see in verse uh, 22 that she struggled. The children struggled together within her. The word struggle there is a, is a bit tame. Um, it's actually more like they slammed together is actually the way the wording is. It was a wrestling match inside of her womb. And now for, for Rebecca to complain about this, it must have been pretty brutal because she was a tough woman. We saw in chapter 24 that she watered uh, the servants 10 camels. That would have been about 20 to 30 gallons per camel. That would have taken several hours to sort out. So she is a very, very tough woman. This was causing her immense pain. She was probably a lot like an Alaskan woman. My wife is from Alaska, and she often talks about how the men in Alaska don't value beauty when it comes to women. They value strength. They're not like, wow, what a beautiful woman. They're like, did you see her carry that 100-pound propane tank? Like, come on, let's, let's, let's talk about it, girl. That, that, is, that is what's going on here. She's a strong woman, but yet she feels like she's being torn apart from the inside because of the strife between her two sons. And God responds with this prophecy, in verse 23, to comfort her. She inquires of him, and he, he says, the two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Why does God respond this way? Number one is that he does so to comfort her in her affliction. God sovereignly choosing us helps, under, helps us understand that he is there when we struggle. She says, if it is thus, verse 22, if, if it's going to be this way, in other words, you, God, are in control. If it's going to be this way, would you, would you please comfort me and help me understand What's going on inside of me? It shows us that God and his sovereign grace, meaning that there's nothing that he doesn't control because he knows and makes all things happen, that it shows us he's with us. That he's bringing about our good. So he comforts her, but also it shows us that anyone can be saved. Anybody can get in on this. And it shows us that the unlikely can be saved. That he, that he chooses the lowest he doesn't choose the firstborn. That the oldest had all the rights, but yet Jesus said the least in the kingdom shall be the greatest. We see this role reversal where the weak, not the strong, is the favored one. Alan Ross says that God elects to use the things that are weak to confound the mighty, the things that are not to confound the things that are. And we see this in the life of Esau and Jacob, looking at verse 24. The winter days to, uh, to give birth were coming, uh, were completed. Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Esau came out looking like a 35-year-old man. 
He had glasses and a pocket protector and a receding hairline. Like this man was hairy. He comes out, I mean, he, and he's, he's this guy we see in verse 27. He's a hunter. He probably lived in New Hampshire, drove a big truck. Like Esau is a man's man, right? The stereotype of a man's man. Jacob, on the other hand, is small and says that he's quiet. Which that word for quiet actually means steady and level-headed. And we'll see where that comes in in a minute. He's a bit of a homebody. He's at the heel of his brother, grabbing onto his heel, which actually ends up giving him his name. It would have been an affectionate name that Isaac and Rebekah had given him. So we see the unlikely, but we also see that God saves the undeserving. God chooses those who don't deserve grace. And if you look at Jacob and Esau, you're going to have a really hard time figuring out which one of these you should live like. Neither one of these guys are a moral example of how you should live. Neither neither of these guys deserved a relationship with God. It's a little bit like trying to vote for the president. The last couple of elections, it's like, do I want to be punched in the face or do I want to be punched in the face hard? Like there's real, really not a good choice here. Esau, we see later, is a vulgar, thoughtless, impatient man. Jacob would steal your credit card in a heartbeat. Like neither one of these guys are people that we should emulate. But we see that this is what God does. God chooses us not because we're deserving, but because he is gracious. And what this means is that anybody can get in on this, that there is no sin that you've ever committed that can keep you from God's grace. That there's no family that you could be born in that could keep you from God's grace. That you don't get a privilege because you, you came to church growing up as a kid. The salvation is available to anyone who will receive it. And we see through this passage that God is going to call a people together from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, every sin struggle, every background together as a people who will worship Jesus alone. So God is making a way by by grace. He chooses us by grace. So then what do we do? God saves and we respond. Faith is a response to grace. Faith is a response to grace. To grace. Grace means simply getting something that you don't deserve, that you get something you did not earn, something that you were unlikely to get, that you receive what you don't deserve. And then faith is trusting in that thing you don't deserve, believing that it's valuable. It's a little bit like if you were a kid and you acted horribly, which I'm sure none of you ever did, right, as a kid. I'm sure kids in the room, I'm sure none of you have ever misbehaved. Elijah, have you ever misbehaved? I saw those eyes, yes. Um, sometimes we misbehave as kids. And let's say that you were supposed to go to Six Flags the next day and you just threw a outright tantrum. Like you lost your mind. You didn't get the cereal, whatever it is. You didn't get what you wanted. Do you deserve to go to Six Flags the next day? Thank you, child. No, you do not deserve to go to Six Flags the next day. The kids know, faith like a child. You don't deserve to go, but let's say that your parents decide to let you go anyway. They're being gracious. They're being incredibly kind. What's the wrong way to react? The wrong way to react is to keep acting like a turd, right? To keep acting like like you're ungrateful, to keep acting like you're too prideful to receive the gift that they're offering you, to make little of the gift, to accuse your parents and say, you don't really mean it. You don't really love me. You don't want me to have any fun. The proper way to respond would be gratefulness a deeper love for your parents who would love you even when you're being unlovable. Because what's really at stake? Relationship. Relationship's at stake. 
And here in chapter 25, we see that Esau and Jacob and their relationship with their father is truly what's at stake here when it comes to the gifts that he gives. It was all about a special relationship to the father. So the birthright, what it gave was an inheritance that was the greatest gift that a father could give his son. And notice how Esau responds to this. We look at verse 29. Jacob's cooking some stew. Esau comes in from the field and he is exhausted. And he says in verse 30, he says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. The way this is literally spelled out in the Hebrew is give me the red stuff, the red stuff, like repeats the word. Give me some of that red stuff. I want it right now. I'm so tired. This This is what I want more than anything in the world. And Jacob, being very sly and cunning, says, oh, you want it, right? Then you have to sell me your birthright. What he's saying is you have to sell me, give me your special relationship with, the, with our father. What does this tell us about faith? Is that you trust what you want most. You trust what you want most. Jacob and Esau show two different ways of trust. Esau trusted his stomach. He trusted his desires. He trusted the thing he wanted in the moment over the promise of his father's love over a lifetime. And in doing so, he he treated this birthright lightly and says he despised it in verse 34. And what you and I often do is that we give up what our father provides if it means I can get what I want in the moment. But what did Jacob want most? He wanted his father's approval more than anything. If you go all the way back to verse 28, we see this, and we'll unpack some of the dynamic of this next week. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, does that say that Isaac didn't love Jacob? No, but it says he didn't love him as much as he loved Esau. He didn't have the special relationship with his father that Esau did. And what he wanted more than anything was he said, I want a relationship with my father like Esau has. I value this above all things. I'm willing to deceive him in order to get it. And faith says that you want what your father has more than anything. You want relationship with him more than anything. It's saying to God, I see how good you are. I see how much you love me. I see what you've provided, and I want that more than anything, no matter the cost, no matter what I have to give up, I want that more than anything. It's saying, you, Lord, are worth all that I could ever give because you wanted me enough to give me your son. And what this leads you to do is it leads you to deny yourself for what you want most. You have to deny yourself. Esau could not deny this this pressing need inside of him for food. And he's being a little extra because you look at verse 32 and he says, I'm about to die, right? Like he's not about to die, but he feels like he's going to die if he doesn't get this thing in the moment. He says, I'm going to die without it. But what you and I often are saying when we look at God and we look at what he asks of us, his commandments And we look at it and we say, that's just, that's too much. I can't do that. We look at something and say, well, if I'm going to follow you, I'm going to have to wait too long for this desire to be fulfilled. That's just way too hard, Lord. What we're actually saying is, God, I'm going to die without this. If I don't have the right relationship, if I don't have the right job, the right situation, if I have to wait, I'm going to die without it. What good is the eternal gift of your love, God, if I don't get what I want right now? 
Notice, notice what Esau trades his birthright for. He trades it for lentil soup. Have you ever had lentil soup? Is that worth trading relationship with your dad for? It's not even steak. Like if it was a, if it was a good ribeye, I'd be like, well, I, I, I don't know, I don't like my dad that much. But you know, I mean, when you give up life with God for something else, what you're saying is, is I will take that red stuff over a relationship with my father. It seems nuts, right? But the world we live in, the dominant message is fulfill yourself. Instant gratification. Get it now. Do what you want now. But the gospel tells us deny yourself for the greater blessing that God gives in him. This is something that that Jacob understood. He knew. He knew this was going to bring problems with, with Esau. He knew this was going to bring problems with his parents. But he counted the cost. Whatever this may cost me, whatever I may lose, this relationship to my dad is worth it. There's no cost too great for you this morning. Because what you get in God is so much better than what you can hang on to for yourself. Listen, I want you to understand this. God is not trying to swindle you when he calls you to trust him. He's not a used car salesman. Have you ever been sitting with a used car salesman? They're like trying to manipulate the term and make it longer so the payment looks lower. They're trying to hide the overall cost. They're ignoring that engine issue. That's kind of how we approach God, thinking, God, well, you're asking me to give up something that I could possibly never give up. But do you know what Jesus actually tells us to do when it comes to following him? He says, count the cost. He says, count the cost. I want you to know all the problems you're going to have. I want you to know all the the obstacles. I want you to know all the things that are going to get in your way. I actually want you to count the cost. Jesus says, I want you to count the cost of your reputation. What is this going to cost you before other people? I want you to count the cost of what your family or your friends are going to think if you follow me. I want you to count the cost of denying a desire that may never get fulfilled because you obey me. I want you to count the cost of giving up control because once you give your life to Jesus, you're no longer in control of your life. But the reason that Jesus would ask you to do this is because what he offers you is so much better. Because he wants you to look at those things and then look at life eternal with him and realize that I give up anything for this. That he gives the only thing that lasts, the only thing that saves, the only thing that leads to life with God forever. And this is possible because Jesus is our ultimate hope. He's the one that Isaac's family was leading toward. He's the one who went to the cross denying himself for your blessing and showing us that there is no other way. Jesus in the garden before he was going to to the cross is praying to his father, sweating blood. And he says to God, he says, take this cup from me. Take the cup of wrath away from me, God. I, I, I don't wanna do this. If there's any other way, take it away. And then Jesus gets up and goes and faces the cross. Why? Because there's no other way. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ alone, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And what this means is that there is no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of important achievements you could stack up. There's no amount of treating people the right way. None of that can save you. You can only get there through Jesus. And if you haven't, I'd ask you to give your life to Jesus today. Jesus is the brother who gave up heaven, gave up his father so that you could be a part of God's family by faith.
So our response is to understand that God saves and we respond. Surrender to Jesus today. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you feel that tug toward the world, that there's just other things you'd be willing to trade that in, your relationship with God in for. Rest in his grace this morning. Remember what you have with him. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Give your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh,